if we think about uh, the spiritual practice, what are we doing? I, as I probably said, ad infinitum already, I think that there isn't a moment of life that isn't a moment of spiritual practice, really. Moment to moment, we need to make a decision. Uh, I've, I've been reading about that this week and thinking about it and trying to practice it. There's so many things that happen that um, are, are juncture moments where you could get annoyed, you could get irritable, you could get mm, you could get that, you could get the other, or you could say, "Oh, I see that this needs to be taken care of, so I'll do that." And with a good heart, may all beings be happy. We can really make the decision moment to moment to keep the mind a wholesome place. That um, may I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. I've been practicing it more and more as a rubric. Be, you get in line somewhere, and uh, uh, well, I won't tell you the stories of last year. I told you those stories last week of the many indignities of trying to get get some information in an airport about a plane that's been uh, canceled, and when am I going to get another ticket? And how important it is, because ultimately you get the ticket to keep yourself in a good place, so that when you get the ticket, you're not completely you have the ticket one way or another. And you have a ticket with a good heart. You haven't really squandered your energy or your good mood uh, being annoyed about it. I have a book somewhere in my library called You Can't Afford the Luxury of a Negative Thought, which I used to think was just a, a, you know, like a, a clever way. But I think that those negative thoughts condition a kind of a thinking that becomes a negative and pessimistic thinking. And the news this week so lends itself to negative and pessimistic thinking, uh, at least for me. Have you been aware this is a very difficult week for news and how to listen to it? I wanted to say, I want to talk about a lot of things, but I, I did want to talk about uh, maybe spending a little bit more time each time on uh, reiterating actually some instructions for the contemplative practice. I, I think about the life as practice, but actually the time that we're sitting down, talk about what are you actually doing when you sit down. When I sit down here, I mostly am not being with every breath. I sit down and I be with every breath for a little bit, just so that I get myself in the rhythm of being here. And it's interesting to me, breath. How many people are with breath at least a little bit? At least a little bit. It's interesting, breath comes in, breath comes out. And you don't have to do anything about it. I go to sleep, I don't stay up all night, breathe, 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 breathe. I mean, the body breathes by itself. And more or less in a rhythm. And if I bring my attention to it, it's more or less soothing because it's rhythmic. It's like being by a, uh, an ocean that goes in and out and you listen to the waves and they start to make you sleepy in and out. It's when you get in a car and it rocks from side to side, or you're in a hammock, rocks from side to side. There's something about a rhythmicity that starts to play in your body that actually settles the mind down. And then I, my, my practice is just to sit here happily. And it doesn't matter to me that I catalog, that was an in, that was an out, that was an in, that was a big breath, that was a little breath matters to me, and, and thoughts go through, 
remember to shop on the way home. Okay, it's gone. You know, the, the, because thoughts arise, like breaths arise, thoughts arise. The thought machine is keeping doing its thing all the time. But it doesn't need to create any kind of a problem about it. It just does its thing. Sometimes it thinks, uh, and uh, including all kinds of thoughts, ignoble thoughts, um, critical thoughts. I thought I would read, the, this is out of Sunday's um, New York Times. I, I, I do read the, the newspaper, and on those weekends that I have the luxury of being able to read the whole newspaper, I think about that there is more information. I read this somewhere, I don't remember the exact statistic, but there's more information in one Sunday New York Times that there, than there was in every library in the world in 1600 or something. There just is so much information. It's probably more, undoubtedly, more information in my in my phone than there was. <laughs> but as I read all kinds of interesting things, I remember last week we talked about when do we really see an authentic way that uh, that unbeknownst to me, I have certain uh, preconstructions, uh, belief systems, opinions that cloud my mind, but I don't know that they're there clouding my mind. And then I think that I'm getting a whole picture, but because of my biases, I'm probably not. So lo and behold, here's a, a report of some science some person talking about that very same thing, and then the the one day this week, I had um, I had a meal with a friend of mine who's been very active on the diversity committee for Spirit Rock, very much interested in making sure that Spirit Rock appeals to as diverse an audience of people as we can. Uh, it's a particular kind of. Um, because we live in so far out in the valley here, it's more difficult to access for people who don't have a, a personal vehicle for transportation. So, because we meet on a Wednesday morning, it's more difficult to access for people who don't have a flexible work schedule. Uh, because we teach a meditation that we sometimes suggest would be good to take a week or two off to go and do in an intensive way, it also makes it more difficult to be widely accessible across socioeconomic boundaries. So we're thinking about all different ways to make it different. Uh, the things that you don't notice sometimes because you haven't been alert to what our own blind spots make us blind to. This is by a person who teaches diversity. Some months ago, I was in the Memphis airport preparing to fly to New York. While I was sitting at the gate, the gate agent announced that our flight had been delayed 45 minutes. Almost immediately, a voice bellowed from behind me in a deep southern accent. You talking to us, lady? I turned and saw a man I would best describe as Santa Claus with an attitude. <laughs> Mid-60s, white beard and hair, wearing overalls and a flannel shirt, car magazine in hand. I have to admit that I thought I had him pegged, as if his whole life experience could be summed up and understood in that moment. When it's time to board the plane, 
I walked to my aisle seat, and who should be sitting in the window seat but the angry Santa himself. Once we had taken off, I did some work on my computer, and my neighbor read his car magazine. We kept to ourselves for the majority of the flight. As we approached New York, the pilot announced our final descent. Experienced flyers know that this is a time when airplane chat often takes place because it's safe to start a conversation with someone without fear of getting stuck talking to somebody for two hours. Turning, I asked him, what takes you to New York? I'm going to a professional meeting, he responded. When I asked him what he did for a living, he answered that he was a radiologist. Despite being a diversity consultant with 30 years of experience, I'm embarrassed to admit that the guy I had perceived as I that with this guy I had perceived him as a person of lesser education, and here in fact he was a physician. And to my surprise, it didn't stop there. When I asked him if he had a particular area of interest within radiologists, he said that he was using active brain scans to examine how humans respond to stimuli, especially when they interacted with different types of people. <laughs> Is that funny? It turned out that he was working on an area especially interesting to me. If I hadn't been, uh, it hadn't been for my immediate stereotyping of him, I might have learned many new things about the brain during the nearly three-hour flight. You would think that as the founder of Cook Ross, an international diversity consulting company, I would have known better. Yet the unconscious mind plays tricks on all of us in that way. Every day our biases determine what we see and how we judge around us. How many times have you seen people for the first time, perhaps in an interview or a meeting, and made assumptions about them the way I did about Dr. Santa and find out that it's all wrong? that you don't know. I thought about that. Um, one day this week, I was uh, someone had the TV on in the next room, and I was doing something in the other room, and I heard a commentator who was saying some things that sounded eminently sensible to me. I thought, oh, that sounds good. Then I walked on in and found it was a person who formerly I had a very negative opinion about as... But I haven't heard this person in a long time. Maybe they changed their mind. But then I accidentally heard him saying things that I actually approved of. So now I could look at him a little bit. But I see how complicated it is to meet people afresh. It's been terribly difficult for me to read the papers this week. Uh, somebody said, don't do it. But, you know... What I did, somebody said at one point, don't watch the news anymore because if you watch the news, you get bombarded with images which make it even worse. Somebody else says, really, maybe you have to be bombarded with the images to really get it, that it's as horrible as it is. And I keep thinking, what do I want to have from this? I want, I want to be able to respond. What's the best I can do? And yesterday, I and yesterday I was quite despairing about about what was the best I could do. There was an art. I, first of all, I started the paper yesterday morning, 
and for and for a while I was just reading headlines and uh, not only and I, I was noticing that not only not only is was it increasingly terrible and in Gaza but um, that in Texas abortion providers anyway in Texas there are law there's an action to make more restrictions on safe abortions uh, in Iraq Kurds are battling Sunni extremists India is shaken by a case of Muslim men missing in Iraq What made yesterday worse in all of these, um, I was going to read, although it's, it stopped being funny at a certain point. I was going to read where all they were fighting with everybody else. Uh, but I even went so far as to Google out the lyrics from... They're rioting in Africa. Do you remember that? Who were they? That was what group was that? Um, they're starving in Spain. There's hurricanes in Florida, and Kingston Trio. Texas needs rain. The whole world is festering with unhappy souls. The French hate the Germans. The Germans hate the Poles. Italians hate Yugoslavs. South Africans hate the Dutch. And I don't like anybody very much. <laughs> but, you know, I thought of it while I was reading the paper, and then I thought, that's not funny. It was funny, maybe, when the Kingston Trio sang it in 1966. Maybe it was funny. But it's not funny anymore. Uh, as the day got on, I got actually more and more despondent about things. There was, um, in my view, a terrible um, one-page ad in the New York Times. Did anybody see it? I'm, I'm even embarrassed to show it to you. It's an ad by Ellie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel, as you may probably know, Elie Wiesel was a child in uh, Poland at the beginning of the Second World War. He was 15 when his family was rounded up, and he as well, and brought to a concentration camp. All of his family died there, and he, by some luck, managed not to die, managed to make it out, managed to come to the United States, managed to get an education, managed to become a tremendous leader, managed to write many books, the first of which is called Night, about his experience of what it was like to be a 15-year-old with your father interned in a concentration camp with such barbaric conditions and treated so cruelly and see everybody die. And... Um, for a long time, I really uh, admired him tremendously as a spokesperson for peace in the world. He said, never again. And I take that never again as never again must that happen to any group of people. Never again. We have to, you know, not never again to the Jews. Never again to anybody. Um, 
So I really was quite dismayed. Maybe you'll feel otherwise. There's a whole page in the New York Times that has a headline, which just I find, I find appalling. Maybe you'll find something else. It says, Jews rejected child sacrifice 3,500 3, years ago. Now it's Hamas's turn. I think that's mean. Now it's what? Now it's Hamas's turn. I think that's mean and gratuitous. I don't think that what Hamas is doing is child sacrifice. I think Hamas is doing what, uh, what beleaguered and oppressed people think they have to do to fight back. I also think they don't have any place to put their armaments except in places where there are people because Gaza is very crowded. And even if they are putting them there thinking that they are putting people in peril and they're willing to take the risk, it's because there's nothing else they can do. Uh, I don't agree with the goals of Hamas, which is the extermination of the Israeli state. But I don't think that anyone... Um, I don't think it's right to malign anyone. I don't think it helps anything. And I think that the Palestinians that are getting killed, the Gazans who are getting killed, uh, nobody is purposely putting their children up for sacrifice. And I think it's a very, it's a low and mean-spirited blow. And I was, I was, I was quite dismayed about it, really unhappy. And then as the day went by, I thought, what am I going to say tomorrow? Maybe I'll get sick and I won't go. <laughs> because you, know, you want to come with some courageous way to pull something out. You, you don't want to say, my, my mood at midday is it's all lost. And, you know, and, you, I, and I knew I had to pull it out. So rest assured, I pulled it out. So relax. But it took me a long day. I was really unhappy. Uh, I didn't like that. You know, it's, it's, it's complicated. It's particularly a complicated time for Jews because Jews don't like what's going on there. American Jews don't like what's going on. My friends in Israel don't like going what's, what's going on. There are factions of the population of Israel that are very supportive of Mr. Netanyahu. Uh, they are largely factions of people who are used to living under authoritarian governments, uh, the segments of the population there that are recent immigrants uh, from Africa, from the Soviet Union, um, who have been oppressed peoples all their lives and now in a place of being uh, imperiled become the oppressors. But everybody's wrong. Everybody's wrong, and um, I don't know how it's going to end, and I'm worried about that. But I thought, what, what can I do? There's nothing to do. And then I thought, well, at the, somewhere at the end of the day, I thought, this is what I think. When I'm, when I'm, I can't. I began to think I didn't feel so like back to the wall. With it's, it's really terrible. Since 9-11. And then I remembered that because on 9-11 we were just so appalled with what happened that it wasn't so much being mad at anybody. It was just appalling and scary in terms of what will be the world now. What will happen? And how many people here were here on the morning after 
Joe was here, Mo was here. A lot of people were here. The, all the churches in Marin were open, the synagogues were open. People wanted to go someplace and sit with other people. And we got together and we talked a little bit about how do you feel, because people wanted to talk a little bit about how do they feel. And uh, most of the time what we did was we took refuges and precepts. We just chanted refuges and precepts. That Because when, when, when things get really terrible, there are all kinds of thoughts that come up in us, in me at least, maybe in you. I, maybe I should just ask you what kind of thoughts came up in you. But uh, I think that the answer for myself when I feel I don't know what to do is I can take refuge in the best parts of me. I can take refuge in the part of me that's determined to not harm anybody. And to sit in a room with 50 or 60 or 100 people who say, I also vow not to harm living beings. I also undertake. Because what's going to be the answer for the whole world unless everybody says, that's enough. It doesn't matter who did it. It matters that we're going to stop doing it. You know, I had this great brief period of extreme... Um, optimism uh, at the time of what we were calling the Arab Spring, mm -hmm. watching the, particularly watching the thousands of people in the main square in Cairo, mostly young, all peaceful, all on cell phones, all texting each other. And I had a feeling that half the world is under 25. They all have cell phones. They could all text each other and say, listen, we need a planet. These guys are messing it up. Let's just stop. Everybody, put down the arms. Everybody's always making money on selling guns to this one and that one and that one and that one. What about, stop, what, what about everybody said, that's it, I'm not going to fire a gun. James Brady died yesterday. Yeah. Do you remember James Brady? <coughs> Who doesn't know who James Brady is? Harrison, do you know who James Brady is? So there's a picture of him. He never really got himself completely back. But neither do we have effective gun laws since that, since that attempt on, on, on uh, President Reagan's life. People are now opening fire in movie theaters when people text. I mean, you know, in certain states, you can walk around with a gun in your in your handbag. I mean, that's all, that's alarming. Um, what if everybody who's under 25 in the world said, I am vowing to stop fighting? Somebody would have to say, we'll get everybody fed. You all stop fighting, one, two, three, no more fighting. And we'll get together the people who run the world and have the money and we'll get everybody fed and inoculated, and we'll build some schools. Every one of those missiles in that missile dome that's presumably counteracting the hundreds of missiles that come into Israel every day costs $100,000. Every one of them could build a school. 
Every one of them could build a health clinic. What are we doing? We're really throwing away money. There was an article in... Um, I really want to, for you to talk about this because I'm not the only one who feels... There's an article in last Sunday's New York Times about a man who says, you know, I'm a congenital pessimist. Anybody here thinks they're a congenital? I'm not. I'm an easily cheered pessimist. Uh, but here's this guy who talking about, he grew up with a father who was a realist and a pessimist and all of his life, he's thinking, life is, life is just, the world is a hell. And human beings are tortured souls. On the, he's read a lot, by the time he's an adolescent, he's read a lot of Schopenhauer and uh, Samuel Beckett. So that's not a cheerful way to start in a, a young adulthood. And then what happens is he says, but then he got married. And... He said, I was recently sorting out the tottering obelisks of books on my bedside table when I took note of the absurd irony of three consecutively stacked volumes. One was Siron's The Trouble with Being Born, Pale Yellow Spine of which was, that's probably like Beckett or um, uh, Sartre. Uh, the, uh, the Trouble with Being Born is then you're in this world that's, okay. Uh, a pale yellow spine of which was being sandwiched between two much more, two much more colorful titles, sandwiched between Dora goes to the dentist, and the little blue truck. Those two were the property of my son, who was brought into the world sixteen months ago, premeditatively and in cold blood, by my wife and myself. The intertextual incongruity of this little stack of books struck me as a comically blunt symbol for some deep and unresolved inconsistency in my life. The occasion of my son's birth in March of last year is one that I recall now through a revisionist haze of delight. At the time, what I mostly felt was a potent combination of pity and anxiety because I looked down at him in the bed between his dazed and exhausted mother, his head coned by the pressure of, his birth, of the birth canal, his impossibly tiny and yet anatomically correct fists raised in a tremingly ambiguous gesture of defiance, it was clear that he was not at all happy about the situation in which he'd been suddenly been forced. He was confused and terrified and furious. Oh, but that's his gloss, of course. He could have been just moving his little hands around. Um, I remember telling him that I was sorry <laughs> and that I loved him and I would make it up to him in whatever way I could. It goes on to say, he's, he's got now this baby that he cares more about than anyway. He says, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and, tell, and pretend that I can provide you the definition of parental love, but I'll tell you this. Two of its major active ingredients are fear and guilt. Fear of the vast and bewildering spectrum of terrible things that might befall the object that I love so much. And guilt that I might not have done enough to prevent them. Quite, Of course, I'm biased, but this forceful 
apprehension of the world's expansive treachery in contrast to the innocence and beauty of the tiny creature I've just brought into it seems to me to be the only sane reaction to becoming a parent. I was strangely reassured at any rate to find that I was also more or less a reaction of my wife who is nowhere near as prone as I am into indulging in generalized gloom. One night, as our son slept in his crib beside our bed, she said something that struck me with its tender severity. She said, I'm not sure if I knew him, I was gonna if I had known that I loved him this much, I'm not sure I would have ever had him. But then more recently, the three of us were hanging out during the 20 minutes or so between his bath and bedtime. We were playing with one of his current favorite toys, a pleasingly old school setup where you stack a selection of colored wooden rings on top of one another onto a conical tower. It's helping him out a little and amusing him by obnoxiously shouting boom in the matter of a pro-wrestling pro commentator every time the ring slid down on the wooden pole. And wonderfully, he immediately adopted this as his preferred stacking style, uttering a high and triumphant boom whenever the ring hit home and laughing so hard at the pure giddy joy of it, the sudden happy conversion of language and object, or perhaps his passable impersonation of his father that he actually fell over sideways a couple of times. <laughs> and then he did a thing he's been doing recently, which I hope he doesn't stop doing. He climbed up into his mother's lap and embraced her, and then he leaned out and pulled me in by my hair so that he positioned himself in the middle of a little group hug, a solid core of love that in this worst of all possible worlds was for the moment powerless to penetrate. This is the sort of thing that starts happening. It's difficult to keep your faith in pessimism. <laughs> And to remember, the to remember the aggregate nature of things. Having a child feels like returning some measure of innocence to the world. And this is wonderful. But we're talking about a world with an especially poor track record in dealing with innocence. Unforgivably, perhaps, I think of this much more frequently than I ever did before deciding to bring a child, this particular child, into the world. It seemed like a remote abstraction before, but it is intimate and visceral now, as close to me as his little chest is when I hold him to my own after he's fallen and hurt himself or woken up or crying or hungry or lonely or is just upset for any of the infinite number of reasons to be upset in this world. I wonder how I can reconcile my love for him, my responsibility, with my essentially pessimistic stance towards the world we chose to bring him into. Maybe the trouble with being born can be stacked with Dora goes to the dentist and a little blue truck without needing to reconcile the strangeness of the proximity. Maybe it's a strangeness that can't be reconciled, only lived with. See, that's, I think, the, the reason that I brought that whole thing in to read to you. It's a strangeness that can't be reconciled, that what the Buddha talked about is the ultimate Dukkha of the world on all kinds of levels. As I was reading the um, the paper this weekend, at one point I thought I was going to just make a list of all the headlines, but then I thought, this is not funny, because here is an earthquake, and here is, was a hurricane, and here was a mine disaster, and those are all things that happened that nobody did purposely to one another. And here are people who died 
in the ripeness of old age and some not in the ripeness of old age, which nobody did anything. It's just what happens with people. And here are people like James Brady, who died earlier and more um, <clears throat> debilitated than he might have if someone hadn't shot him. And here are people shooting at each other in Iraq and in Afghanistan and in Gaza. And there's an Ebola epidemic in Africa. And uh, all kinds of things are happening all over the place. And I was going to make that list. And then I thought, no, I'm not going to do this because it could look like they're rioting in Africa. And I don't want to be lighthearted about it because it's not lighthearted. It's a mess. And then I thought, but it's what it is. It's what it is. I don't want to not look the other way. I don't want to look the other way. I want to be able to look and say, well, some of these things are things that happen. It happens because people get born that they die. And that's just sad. That's poignant because people miss them. It doesn't have the extra problem of people purposely killing them, that people just die. My, my son's mother-in-law is going to die. It's not an unhappy event. She's 85 years old. She had a very rich life. She has children. She has grandchildren. She has still a husband that she's been with all this time. She, she is very pleased with her life and likes looking at the pictures of it. That's not a dukkha death. That's a, like a normal death. I hope I die like that. The, dies, the dying that's extra, the dying that we're causing by not bringing me medicines to all the parts of the world where they could be, by not addressing oppression in all the ways that it could be oppressed, by not stopping those wars. So there's different kinds of levels of dukkha. It's not the same dukkha. There's dukkha that you can respond to, and there's the internal dukkha of how you how one... Uh, accepts the things that happen in their mind and the wisdom with which we hold them. But there's also the ability to respond and respond to compassion. Well, I was thinking one of the ones sometimes I hear is wisdom. Well, that's happening in the world, all these terrible things because of greed, hatred, and delusion. So what can I do about it? I don't find that, I think it's probably true but it's happening because of greed and hatred and delusion and the feeling that my country has to be separate from yours or I have to make money selling armaments or all the greed and hatred and delusion that fuels it. But that doesn't mean, even if that were true, that I shouldn't do what I can do about that. If I can't go out and end the greed and hatred and delusion or if I can't write the ultimate text that's going to change the whole world, at least I can in my communities not lose faith and remember that in the world someone once asked me a long time ago you probably in such a similar discussion where uh, I, I said uh, you know given it all I, I really really do not want to lose faith and I, I think it could be different. I think people could take out their cell phones and say, let's all stop. Let's just all stop. Nobody gonna, we're all going to put down the guns, pass all the laws to have all the guns you want. Nobody's going to fire them anymore or whatever. And we'll share all the food and we'll share the medicine. And people say, you really think that could happen? Really think there could be a new world? The planet is dying, you know, the, the, really the fish are dying. That was another big article this week 
the fish are dying. Is it really, it's, you think it's going to happen in time? And I said, I don't know. But, but this, I really take some courage from. I don't know, maybe the planet will die. Maybe it, it probably won't die in my lifetime. But I think about my grandchildren who are going to live another 60 years. You know, I'm really worried about what it's going to look like in theirs. But even if it doesn't pull itself out and this experiment doesn't end well, this experiment of life on Earth, I want to be in the end in, in that group of people in the world who are going to be the consolers at the end. You know, there's going to be people who are going to be saying, woe is us, look what's happening. And they're going to be the people who have practiced consolation and compassion, who are going to be the consolers. Towards which end, I'm going to look for those precepts that um, Larry Yang wrote, that John Mifsud sent to me. There they are. Because I thought we would do this as a joint project. Um, Uh, how do I want to do this? I wanted for everybody's voice to have a chance to say something because this is a... And rather than everybody talk to everybody, I mean, stand up and take one turn to everybody, I'm sure we all feel it. How many people here feel upset about the world situation? Okay, so now we ascertain that. Everybody, if they got up, would say, I feel upset. How many people feel just a wee bit demoralized, at least? Okay. So, okay, we've ascertained that. Get a partner. So talk to somebody and say, you want to be my partner. You got a partner? Just give a sign, okay? So here's what I'd like you to talk about. I'm going to give you an... I, wait, wait. First of all, you can say hello to the partner. What's your name? But... Okay, ding. I'll have to get it. Ding dong. I really want to, I, I want to, I want to read you the beginning of this because it's so valuable. Ding. Larry Yang, who's my colleague and very good friend and uh, a prime mover in the uh, bringing diversity consciousness to the largest in the largest way to Spirit Rock, has written this, I won't read all of it, but there are going to be 18 um, uh, precepts. And what I find is I am inspired and ennobled every time I say all of the precepts have to do with I'm going to live in a way that's going to make a difference for the better in the world. That's what they all, I'm, going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to cause upset in this way or this way or this way or this way. And we do them quite regularly here in a minimal way. Larry's rewritten precepts are not minimal. They, they bring in some more background. So I'm going to read you each of them. I, I, I'll just do that, and then we'll have a minute or two for you to talk about them in your little group about, can you say to each other, you know, I'm going to live that way. And this first sentence that he begins, he says, oppression 
is a difficult concept to embrace and it's a difficult experience to explain. Oppression is an intense form of suffering that often elicits seemingly immediate reactions from individuals, whether they're the targets of oppression or the instigators of oppression, which is very important to say. For people who are directly wounded by the violence of racism, sexism, homophobia, classism, and other forms of oppression, the pain may be so great that it's difficult to examine the pain the moment-to-moment basis, which is what our Dharma practice asks us to do. People who perpetrate oppression or are not the direct targets of oppression, the pain may not be acknowledged, seen, or even understood, and yet it exists. How do we consciously move towards the suffering from wherever we are at with awareness and intention and the compassion that we learn from studying Dharma? So here are the ten, it's eight precepts. The first precept, which when we say in its briefest way, we say as, I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings. This one says, aware of the suffering caused by imposing one's own opinions or cultural beliefs upon another human being, I undertake the training to refrain from forcing others in any way through authority, threat, financial incentive, or education to adopt my own belief system. We could spend a year on that particular first one. Can you think of some way that you tried to convince someone? I'm amazed at what just came up in my own mind that I hadn't even thought about. Maybe we'll never get past one on today. Maybe, then we'll do the rest of them next week. I commit to respecting every human being's right to be different while working towards the elimination of suffering of all beings. Can you think of that in your life? Who had a view of this? Aware of the suffering caused by imposing one's own opinions or cultural beliefs on any other human being, I undertake the training to refrain from forcing others in any way through authority, threat, financial incentive, or education, to adopt my own belief system. I commit to respecting every human being's right to being different and to work towards the elimination of suffering in all beings. I would like you to have a discussion with your partner. Who hasn't got a partner? Everybody got a partner? You have a partner? Everybody, everybody's got a partner, 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 partner? Okay. If we have any leftover one, we'll put you in a partner with two other people. Everybody a partner? Go. Have a conversation. What does what? And A could talk, then B could talk, and then A and B could talk together. So there you go.
This is just a, this is just a, uh, this is just a, this, this is just a process moment. First of all, I see that everybody has something to say, that, which is really important. Uh, uh, and we're going to go on and talk some more to those same people. Are you having a good time with that going on and talking? Yeah. Okay. Do you want to continue on that one or do you want precept two? Uh, precept two? Okay. Huh? Let's move on. We'll do the rest of them next week because there's no end to these. Uh, aware of the suffering caused by invalidating or denying another person's experience I undertake the training to refrain from making assumptions or harshly judging any beliefs or attitudes that are different from my own and not understandable to me. Huh. Anybody didn't, anybody didn't have one come to mind at that point? I don't even have to give you a prompt about that. Okay, here you go. Here it is. Aware of the suffering caused by invalidating or denying another person's experience, I undertake the training to refrain from making assumptions or harshly judging any beliefs and attitudes that are different from my own or not understandable to me. 
you know, just on, 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 a sim, on a sort of a simple way, if you hadn't thought about this, what if I were to say to you that 30% uh, of the people in this room uh, voted exactly differently from you in the last election? We you think, hmm, I wonder if that was the person I was talking to. <laughs> See, the chance is that... My guess is that, some, that not everybody voted the same. In my personal family, not everybody voted the same. In my intimate family, I'm happy to tell you they voted the same, otherwise it'd be too hard. But, it, I mean, but amongst my friends, amongst my very good friends, I have, a, I have a, some people who are intimately connected with each other who vote differently. I don't know how they manage that. But because of what's embedded in this question, because somebody who has that view, we have a view, I have a view about somebody who has that view. Yeah. It's not only a view about the view, but about what kind of a person would have a view like that. You know? <laughs> so, that, so listen to this. So aware of the suffering caused by invalidating or denying another person's experience, I undertake the training to refrain from making assumptions or harshly judging any beliefs or attitudes that are different from my own. I commit to being open-minded towards other points of view, and I commit to meeting each perceived difference in another person with a willingness to learn more about their worldview and individual circumstances. Particularly thinking about what would that mean if you'd committed to that in your life? Who would I have to go like this afternoon? <laughs> now, this it's a way it's a, it's a way that I'm framing the question for myself. If I said yes, yes, I want to do that. And someone said, do it today. Who would I have to phone up now and say, are you free this afternoon? Can I come and talk to you? Because I never quite got it about. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Could you think of somebody? All right, you don't have to tell who. Change the name. Tell whatever. <laughs> but do it for four or five minutes. Do you like these? These are great. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.